what I learned along the way from having just kind of such a tumultuous childhood and financial struggle until I was very late in life is don't be afraid to take a chance. Look for opportunities and don't be afraid to lean into these opportunities. You know, what is the worst that you can happen, right? You start a company and it doesn't work. So what? You can either try again or you can go back and take your normal job. Like no harm, no foul. You're going to be okay. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Growing up in a small town in Iowa, Jill Hagencourt never imagined herself as a doctor or a scientist or an entrepreneur. Yet she became all three, blazing her own path and charting for herself a captivating personal and professional journey. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. So, Lisa. Hey there, David. How's it going? Hey. Oh, that sounds enthusiastic. Um, <laughs> so, It's day million in quarantine. Oh, my gosh. I know. I know. Um, so um, today's guest, as you know, is from Iowa. Uh, and I'm curious. I know that you were uh, grew up out here and also lived in um, Princeton, I think. Um, yep. Have you ever uh, had an opportunity to spend any time in between? Not only have I been to Iowa, but I have spent many hours in Iowa because once upon a time, I, in my old behavioral health managed care days, sold a, a program to carve out behavioral health from Medicaid to the state of Iowa. And I um, marched through damn near every major town. And then my daughter, many years later, decided that the music man was her most favorite thing to watch when she was a kid, you know, took place in, well, River City in the movie, but uh, in Iowa, and wow. they are very proud of that there. So you see little signs, I think it's Mason City, I think, Jill probably know, in that town. So yes, I, I have spent, I have been in almost every single state, actually. Wow. All right. Well, you definitely have some credibility uh, <laughs> on this. So Jill, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, we're so delighted. It's so Mason City, right, Jill? It's Mason City? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Mason City. I hope I got that right because I'm going to be a bad Iowan if I don't. Oh my God. So Jill grew up in a small town in Iowa. Is this heaven? No. It's Iowa. But unlike the movie, hers was an unusually difficult childhood, not made easier by parents splitting up when she was 10, uh, leaving Jill and her siblings struggling to get by. It sounds really challenging. Uh, Jill, what, what was it like? Um, well, I mean, it was tough childhood. Um, you know, we didn't, our, our parents were, you know, blue collar working class parents. And, and then after the divorce financially, things were really strained. And so it was, you know, you know, government housing, government assisted hot food, hot lunch programs, which was humiliating. So we just didn't do it because it was too embarrassing to go in that line. So you know, we were hungry and um, had to kind of get creative about how we how we got food. And there was times when we didn't have milk and um, and certainly not a lot of supervision. So a lot of room to kind of uh, wander, wander off track um, if we so chose to. So it, it was challenging. 
Wow. And you told me that you were secretly good at school, um, but rebellious and a real partier, which apparently strongly influenced your post-high school plans. Yeah, really all through. I was um, kind of a behavioral problem all through elementary school, junior high and high school. I think I set records for um, the most hours of uh, in-school suspension and detention um, served in my junior high and maybe even my high school, too. Um, and But even in, in elementary school, I was uh, a behavioral problem. And so a lot of the focus was on my bad behavior rather than my the fact that I actually had some intellectual capability. And, you know, in rural Iowa, especially at that time, almost nobody went to a four-year university. Certainly as a female, you know, you, you weren't really encouraged to do that kind of thing. So, um, so the, the focus really wasn't on my education. But so how did you wind up at a four-year college or how did you choose one? I was struck by your selection process. <laughs> because my, my childhood and teenage years were kind of so um, miserable, I was just one of those kids that just, I'm like, I just got to get out of here. I can't stay here. Like, it's, it's going to kill me if I stay here. I got to get out. And um, I, I had heard of people going to college. I heard there were cute boys and good parties. And I thought that's, that's where I'm going. And um, I ended up going to Iowa City, which is where the University of Iowa is. It's about an hour and a half away from where I grew up. Um, but to me, uh, that was you know, a world away. Like, it was so far away to go to Iowa City. Wow. Um, so I was just really excited to get there and, and make a, a new start. I think that method for choosing college is actually pretty common. I don't, I don't think it's <laughs> Certainly. I mean, like, I know there's some kids who like think about, uh, you know, academically what's a great place to study engineering or something like that. But no, I just, uh, I just wanted an escape route that um, had cute boys and fun parties. <laughs> All right, then. So we will make sure my kids do not listen to this podcast. Um, so, so at, at, uh, at college, uh, you were, so this is, again, I'm so captivated by your story. So at college, I know that you worked two to three jobs, plus you did really well. Plus, according to you, I believe you said you partied all the time, but you mm -hmm. said your ultimate career direction would be strongly influenced by a, guy, by a guy, but not exactly a guy who inspired you. Can you take it from there? Sure. So um, when I got to college, I was actually expecting to, people told me I was going to drop out. People bet me that I would drop out after one semester. So I, I didn't go in with a lot of confidence. Um, I also had no idea how to apply for financial aid. I had no idea. Um, and so I had to work two to three jobs all the time. I paid for every penny of every class of every book of every bottle of shampoo and every pencil um, while I was going through. And um, by the end of my first semester, I ended up on the, the dean's list. And I was like, and I, like I said, I, it was no shortage of partying happening, um, plus the multiple jobs. And so I was like, okay, you know, I got this. But because my high school preparation was not a college prep kind of education. I hadn't read any literature. I, um, you know, the classic books I didn't know about. So I really wanted to like go back and learn basic history and science and math. And um, so I started taking a lot of humanities classes and um, my, the, my boyfriend at the time uh, was in medical school. And this is, I, this is the upside of having a jerk boyfriend. Like there's a lot of downsides to having a jerk boyfriend. I dated this guy for six years, but he was a total jerk in every way. But one of the ways that he was a jerk is that he would tell me the only reason I got good grades was because I took these humanities classes. Humanities classes are so easy that if I tried to take a real class, like a pre-med class that I would fail. 
And um, so after about three years of that, I just got fed up with it. And um, it was, we waited into a dare and he dared me to take the hardest class he ever took as an undergrad, which was pre-med animal bio with a lab. It had um, a prerequisite of a year of chemistry and a year of physics, neither which I had ever taken. Um, And I had to get special permission even to get into the class. But the bet was whoever ended up with a lower score in that class had to take the winner to Red Lobster because that was the nicest restaurant either one of us had ever heard of. Um, and I got an A plus highest grade in the, in the class out of the, out of 400 or 500 people. Um, and so it was at that point I was like, wow, I can do science. Like I never dawned on me to do that. I could do science. I hope you dumped that guy shortly thereafter. And it also proves that defiance disorder in high school is so, sort of valuable later in life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he continued to uh, be a jerk boyfriend and, um, prompt me uh, to continue climbing a ladder that I otherwise would have never climbed again. Yeah, talk about how his jerkiness inspired you to uh, pursue an MD-PhD. This is priceless. Um, going to med school. Never crossed my mind. I didn't know any doctors when I was growing up. I, you know, I knew nothing about that field or how somebody gets there. Um, but once we had that bet, so I got that grade and then I, I started taking more science classes and he was like yeah but you can't get into med school like you're not smart enough to get into med school and so I was like all right well bets on so then I took the MCATs and it was clear by with my grades and my um, MCAT scores that I could indeed get into med school then he upped the ante again and just said well you know people like you could never get into like Harvard or Stanford and um, I was like, all right. I mean, I would have never applied to the Harvard or Stanford because people like me don't get into Harvard or Stanford. Um, so, I, but I, I only did it because he told me I couldn't. And um, I just really, you know, was fired up to prove him wrong. And so I thought, well, I'll give it a shot, you know. So what if I don't get in? Like, no, nothing harm trying. So this is how <laughs> yeah, you wound on. up accepted to the MD-PhD program at Stanford. Uh, and then um, you get to the Bay Area which I've heard is nothing like Iowa. Um, and um, <laughs> what were you thinking when you're like, you know, you're coming out here and I, I know you lived in the Tenderloin. What was just your mindset at the time? Well, I was excited, obviously excited to get out of Iowa and someplace, you know, so amazing with such a history and so alive. Um, and, uh, but culturally, like Stanford was an uncomfortable place for me. So I, I just never, I never went to class ever, ever. Oh. I just showed up and took my final exams. Wow. I did, uh, you know, did quite well. <laughs> Worked out okay. And then I know that you, um, you dropped the PhD part of it. Um, uh, and then um, you um, decided that, um, you know, you got the MD, but you decided that you didn't like patient care, but not because you weren't good at it. It was in a sense because you, you cared so much. Could you describe that? Well, it was for, for me, I struggled with um, the hard part of medicine, the part where you're telling people we can't help you anymore or, your loved one's going to die. Um, I, that it was, it never stopped being sad to me. And I don't know if medicine's changed the way they train now, but at the time it, you know, I was just told, Oh, you'll get better at this. Cause I would often cry. And um, it was kind of this thing that I was supposed to grow a callus about and um, quote unquote, get better at. And I just could never imagine myself ever being able to go through, you know, share that experience with a patient and their family and not, you know, feel so sad about it. 
Um, and so that, it just, it's not fun. <laughs> that part of medicine was not fun to me. Um, so I discovered pathology, which is really the science of medicine and like understanding all the, p- the pieces that go into making a human body work properly and improperly, and then trying to, you know, put the pieces together to solve a puzzle. And I found that to it's be so, really, really satisfying. It's so interesting to me because I think some people sort of choose pathology. I mean, people choose th- disciplines for various reasons, uh, of course, but, and, but to, you know, some people are attracted to pathology because they, they actually just don't like or are not uncomfortable interacting with people. But again, in your case, it really, you know, you have a natural affinity for people, obviously. And it's, um, it, it really was sort of almost, it's hurt. It hurts when you're trying to help people and you're not able to. And that, that is a heartbreaking aspect of it. And I, I really resonate with that just so much. Um, you, um, uh, you, you, you started your PATH residency at UCSF. And then you paused your, I should add, your human pathology residency. Um, mm-hmm. you, paused, you paused to work as a mouth pathologist at a startup during the go-go days of the late 90s. Um, mm-hmm. and I feel compelled to make a joke about maybe mouse insurance pays off better. I don't know. <laughs> they pay cash. <laughs> So, 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 so what happened was like, it was like you were in the middle of Silicon Valley. You saw like, oh, my God, everyone's joining a startup and you got recruited to join yeah. one, right? Yeah. I think at that time, there was like 46 new millionaires per day. And I'm living in residency, you know, on resident wages at UCSF, which is at the time one of the lowest paid residency programs in one of the most expensive areas. So I'm literally you know, living well below the poverty level, driving a death mobile, have lived below the poverty level my entire life at this point. And um, just, you know, I got made an offer to join a, a startup to be a mouse pathologist for genetically engineered mice. And these kinds of pathologists didn't exist. So they were like, well, you know, you've got one year of human pathology residency. That's good enough for us. Yeah. Um, and I went and joined, um, joined the startup, which a lot of people told me, you know, you can't, once you leave academia, once you leave your residency, you can't come back. And I think a lot of the times it depends on what kind of residency it is. I mean, I continue to do pathology. So it, it worked out just fine for me. Once every the, the dot-com bubble burst and the biotech bubble burst, um, I was able to kind of jump right out of that and then go back and finish my residency. I imagine at that moment, you know, working in a startup was the first time you'd ever been near anything like a startup like that uh, or a mm-hmm. company like that. It must have been a really strange uh, environment for you. What was your sort of impression of that? It was exhilarating. It yeah. was um, all of these super bright, most of them um, PhDs and tech people, I know science PhDs and tech people, um, super bright, super ambitious. Some of them had been playing the, the, the startup game for a while, so they had some experience because um, I joined this company when it was still under 100 people. Um, and so I was able to like ride the ride um, all the way up to 500 people and an IPO and you know, international operations. Um, and so I just learned so much and it opened my mind up so much to the possibility of, of, you know, how can I be an entrepreneur in medicine? And even as I went back um, to do my residency, finish my residency, every step of the way, I was just constantly thinking about um, this can be done better. This can be done more efficiently. How can we do this better? Um, That's so interesting because people talk about the Silicon Valley, Jill, uh, they talk about the Silicon Valley mindset and we get, after a while, we start to think, oh my gosh, maybe it's just like overhyped or all of this, you know, oh gosh, people are just sort of like, um, you know, uh, you know, kind of buying their own bullshit. 
Um, but mm-hmm. but <laughs> what you're describing is really the opposite. Is uh, you know, it's kind of like I guess the underlying reality, you know, the affirmative reality, where you've, you once you were exposed to thinking an approach that you might not have been exposed to otherwise, it it totally changed your thinking, right? It's also yeah, been, I, before you answer. It must also have been a huge contrast. Because it sounds like your life has been marked in part up to that point by people who say things cannot be done. You cannot mm-hmm. do this. And, you know, so on the entrepreneurial side is, is characterized by people thinking you can do anything if you work Right. Hard. The exact opposite. Yeah. Um, and so, no, I, I really kind of positive. I, I'm just going to will it to happen. Like, this is such a long shot. But, you know, you're in there at five in the morning and you're there, you know, on the weekends and everybody's, you know, pulling, you know, in the same direction to try to make this, this dream happen. Um, and it was like something that had never been done before in like the history of mankind. So it was, that experience was invaluable to me. And like I said, I did get criticized when I made the choice to, to go do it. But if I had not done that, I, my life would be, would have gone in a very different direction. Cause that kind of gave me all the courage I needed to actually think, well, I could start my own company. Like, mm-hmm. wow. <laughs> It's Who so interesting. <laughs> so, so you finished your residency um, uh, in Iowa, I think, and then you went off to UPMC mm-hmm. to pursue not one, but two ultra-specialized fellowships, uh, the first MD to do a particular combination with a real focus on precision medicine before it was even called that. Um, and um, what, were you, what was your, your mindset then? I mean, were you really thinking, well, maybe this will be useful for like the entrepreneur, your entrepreneurial self? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I tried, I wanted to be a normal pathologist um, and, you know, just live a quiet life, make a good paycheck, pushing glass slides. Um, but as I, you know, finished my residency, I, I just, it, um, I, there was too much happening on the bleeding edge. Um, and what I really kind of saw coming was this mass, these massively parallel testing technologies where instead of looking at a single analyte at a time, we were going to start looking at, you know, hundreds to millions of analytes at a time and we're going to have to use computational tools to distill this information into medically meaningful nuggets and that's what I was like the most excited about and what I wanted to learn the most about and um, grateful to UPMC for kind of inventing a, a fellowship training program for me that that allowed me to specialize in just that because it didn't exist at the time. Um, so I was the first MD to do a joint fellowship in molecular genetic pathology and what at the time was called pathology, oncology, informatics. And, um, but now it's actually fairly common to do the, the combination of the two. Um, and just as a fun aside, I, um, my residency chairman, so when I was graduating from residency and I, I told my chairman, I'm going to go do these two fellowships, he said, um, Jill, why don't you do a real fellowship? You're never going to get a job. Mm-hmm. And so when the old curmudgeon white dude is telling you that, you know, you don't know what you're doing, you know, it, you should, should feel reassured that you're on to something. Boy, those people telling you that stuff seem to have a really high negative predictive value, right? Or yeah, something. really. <laughs> it's funny that I like to joke too that I, I wish somebody would have just dared me when I was like 20 that, you know, to learn how to code. I still don't know how to code. Uh, uh, well, let's okay. So I, 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 you know, time flies here, but but we much more to cover. So um, after your fellowship, um, I know that you you founded a company, and a company you told me didn't really go anywhere. But during the course of seeking funding, you started to get CMO offers, and you first wound mm-hmm. up at Complete Genomics, then at Invite, and then this is what I'm talking about at Twenty Three and Me. 
Um, mm-hmm. I've heard of 23andMe. Um, <laughs> uh, and what was so interesting is you were, you, tell us how you came to join that company and why it was such a remarkable time to be joining it. Because we're obviously both big fans of Anne and everything. So if, uh, I'd love to hear like what your experience was like. Um, yeah, so I've, I've got to know Anne and Linda just a little bit through kind of the, the Silicon Valley network. And, um, you know, you know Anne and, and I are around the same age and have, you know, kids and, you know, kind of working moms kind of thing. And we both live in Los Altos. So, um, you know, we would occasionally get together for coffee. And I had long time been a fan of, of 23andMe. But as a board certified pathologist, I could look at what they were doing from a regulatory point of view and kind of recognize that there's some gaps, right? And so I would always say, this consumer aspect of healthcare is so exciting and you guys are you know, leading the charge in this. And, you know, I, I, let me help you in whatever way I can. Like, but you, you got to be careful because of these, you know, there's regulatory issues in here that could be done better. Like it wouldn't hurt your company at all to, to fix these gaps. But um, it, so we, we would have those conversations. And then after 23andMe got their warning letter in um, November of 2013, that led to another long conversation with Anne and I, um, uh, which ultimately ended up in, in a job offer. And so I um, came and joined the company after they had been shut down by the FDA um, to kind of bring it back up into compliance and try to re- re- rebuild bridges um, with the, the medical community. That must have been quite a victory when it did work out, which it obviously did, um, because I mean, there were a lot of people prognosticating at the time. Uh, consistent with some of your other friends that, you know, could never, this company could never recover from that. Um, right. Yeah. And, and it was, I, I learned so much. Um, it, there's very few physicians who have had that close of exposure to, to real consumer engagement in their health and healthcare. And like, how do you actually, you know, best communicate this kind of information to them? How do you measure your success in the communication? Um, and so I'm you know, enormously grateful for the opportunity that I had there and what I learned. And, and then again, the challenge of kind of bringing this in, you know, working with the team there to bring this into, into compliance and trying to um, rebuild those bridges with the medical community. You know, there's you a lot of companies I, I interact with now um, that especially, well, particularly in the digital health arena, whatever that ex- exactly means, um, mm-hmm. who, who spend a lot of time deciding whether or not they should or need to, um, you know, expose themselves to the FDA, you know, apply for, um, you know, approvals and the like. And I wonder what you think about that. I mean, do you think everybody is better off, you know, making that effort? Or do you think by and large, you know, if you can avoid it, you should? So I spend, I mean, that's what I do with my, or what I've been doing with my days for like the last year, I've been um, working with different health tech startups, helping them in that kind of early, you know, product concept phase, mm-hmm. think all the way through from, you know, product concept all the way through widespread commercialization and kind of what kind of data you need in order to be legally on the market from a regulatory point of view and also um, what it takes to get paid and for providers to adopt your service. Um, and there's a lot of people in that come from a tech background who are leaning into healthcare right now who just have no idea what that recipe is, but it is really just a recipe. Um, and so I spent a lot of time answering that question. I could give a whole hour long podcast on the pros and cons, 
But um, I mean, it really depends on what your product is and um, who your buyer is for your product. And, and then there's just a, a you know, trade-off of pros and cons to think through the, with, with my clients. So Jill, returning to your journey, um, uh, I know that, so you did leave uh, 23andMe after several years to go, I think, to color genetics. Um, but, and then um, you, one of the t- things is when you joined uh, 23andMe, you know, like you're saying, they had just been rejected by the FDA or got the warning letter. Their, the stock value, um, uh, the valuation was presumably reasonably depressed. Um, and what you told me that I thought was so interesting, and I guess you were able to sell your shares from 23andMe on the secondary market, which you described as fundamentally life-changing. I mean, it seemed just like a remarkable experience that everyone hears, of, like here, maybe dreams ever hears of, but you, you lived it. And uh, I, I think it might be worth it to step through that, uh, of what just that visceral experience was like and what you did. Um, I mean, I am... I'm, Everything I'm about to say, I'm saying it in the most humbled possible way. Um, but it was one of those Silicon Valley moments. Not like, you know, not like founder of Google Silicon Valley moments, but, but a decent Silicon Valley moment where a life-changing amount of money, more money than you ever, ever, ever thought of, you would ever have, right. shows up in your bank account one day. And, um, and it actually, it wasn't, oh, you know, completely clear that the transaction was even going to go through and kind of like right at the last minute it did. And um, I happened to be on uh, vacation in Mexico uh, when I, when I, it officially went through. And uh, the, the first thing I did was go and uh, tip the bartender a thousand dollars, which <laughs> felt awesome. And needless to say, we got really good service the rest of the time we were there. Um, and then <laughs> I went, uh, came back home to, to California, but, you know, called my family who all my siblings and nieces and everybody still lives in Iowa and, uh, flew back there and said, okay, everybody get in the car. We're going to the mall, buy anything you ever wanted, any, wow. anything you ever, ever wanted. And they were really bad at it at first. Like they went to target and went back to the clearance sale rack oh and, goodness. you know, spent like $250. And I'm like, you guys, I did not fly to Iowa. <laughs> for you guys to spend $250 on the clearance rack. Get out there and really shop. Um, so it took me a while to get them going, but uh, then they what did. did I mean, that's felt. Then, I, so I was about to turn 50. So I took myself and 22 family members um, on a private yacht on co- to coastal Turkey to sail around on coastal wow. Turkey, which was amazing. And, and like all my, you know, my family's from Iowa. So um, they've really never been to that part of the world and to, to, to share that with them and share my 50th birthday in that amazing way with, with my family and the people who had supported me, you know, to get through these accomplishments, to get to where I, you know, it was, you know, opportunity of a lifetime and, and, and trip of a lifetime. Very nice. Oh, uh, for my 50th, I, we, I did like a scavenger hunt in San Francisco with Lisa and my brothers, awesome. I think. Uh, it was <laughs> awesome, but it sounds different. Um, but you describe, uh, I loved it, of course, but it was, um, you described the feeling as uh, you said that you got, I think your words were you said you got to play, quote, hillbilly millionaire, um, and that it was the best feeling ever. Is that right? Yes, that's what we call that shopping trip. Um, <laughs> when I took everybody to the mall to buy whatever they wanted. 
And then I actually let them go online and we actually broke the internet because so many of my family members were on the internet with my credit cards in the, at the same time. <laughs> All right. So um, I did, I really did think that was just such a, 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 you know, if there's, you hear about, like you do hear about people doing really occasionally doing really well out here, but rarely people who seem to have, you know, deserved it so much. Maybe the WhatsApp guy, right? Who, I think it was a WhatsApp guy who was sort of, you know, a poor immigrant who um, then sold it, you know, sold his thing to Facebook after they went originally hire him, right? For like $17 billion. That seems like a good transaction as well. Um, you know, um, so I, um, I know, you know, you've spent the last several years, like you were describing as a medical consultant or about to start a really, maybe started by now, a really cool role as a VP of genomics uh, at Optum. Um, but I just didn't know if we could get maybe just one or two reflections on your experience um, as a savvy physician in the middle of tech. I know we've talked about this before. I'm pretty sure we're in violent agreement about all this. But what do you think, to what extent do you feel tech folks do or don't really understand the complexity of medicine? I think that in the last 10 years, you know, tens of billions of dollars have been invested in health tech with very, very few success stories. Um, and what I've seen over and over again, it's like watching the same movie over and over again. It's pretty torturous, especially when you know, I'm usually the only person with a medical background in the, in the, in the company. And um, I know the recipe, right? And I know that there's no shortcuts. And that if you try to skip a step, you're going to set yourself back three years. Um, but to, to watch these tech entrepreneurs, brilliant tech entrepreneurs who've been wildly successful in consumer tech, try to take the recipe that has worked in consumer tech, right, which is go fast and break things, fake it till you make it, um, right? And if you get it wrong and, and trying to sell somebody a pair of shoes online, like if they wait three days for their shoes instead of one day for their shoes, like it's, it's going to be okay. Um, <laughs> but that same recipe does not work well. Um, when you apply it to a, a real health product. Um, and in fact, that we, we kind of refer, what we call that is unconsented human subjects research in, in healthcare, right? Like, um, you can't sell somebody a finished product when you know it's full of bugs without telling them. Um, and so it's just the, the philosophical differences and the cultural differences between um, tech and health that, that need to um, be better balanced and, and then, you know, get, taking the best of these brilliant tech and design people and combining it with the best of um, people with the medical experience and the understanding about how to access a medical market, um, having that balance are the, are the tech, health tech companies that are going to be most successful, in my opinion. I have a kind of corollary question, which is, um, what do you think about the health tech people and whether they're tech or health tech trying to solve health problems? Do they spend enough time thinking about people like your family, people in the middle of the country? Uh, it just seems to me there's a big gap in how some of these products are designed with respect to real people. Yeah, so I think, it, number one, one of the things you see is somebody in love with their technology and they're just trying to look for a place to stick their technology as opposed to like looking at a problem and trying to figure out the best way to solve the problem. So you do see a lot of that and people will struggle and ultimately end up pivoting. Um, but then, you know, the Bay Area is such a weird bubble place. It's so not like, uh, you know, middle America where, where I grew up. And, and to be able to, like, really understand, um, especially when you're thinking about um, your commercialization strategy and, oh, people will just buy this. Um, you know, people who can't really pay their mortgage and have their lights turned off um, and they're struggling to get milk, 
you know, this, this is it. You're looking at your genetics is like a huge luxury that's beyond comprehension. So I, I, I do think that gets lost sometimes, but, um, but, you know, oftentimes there's people, there's representative people like me, you know, in, in there to, to remind people of that aspect. Have you had any connection with people like Steve Case who've been trying to sort of, you know, or I think J.D. Vance actually joined his group of um, trying to sort of bring entrepreneurship to, uh, you know, to the parts of the country other than the coast, specifically the Midwest. Um, have you uh, had any connection with that? Um, not, not formally. Um, I did spend a lot of time thinking about it and talking about it. Um, before I relocated back out to the Bay Area, and I, I ultimately just had to concede that it is really too hard to be an entrepreneur in the middle of the country, just because none of the the venture money is there. Um, you know, and you need to be able to drive up and down Sand Hill Road trying to, you know. So it's, it's the money it's versus the money. culture. Um, I mean, there's definitely very very smart people in the Midwest who just, of course. I mean, unlike me, I didn't have like a good family or any reason to stay. Right, I had every reason to run. Um, but if I had a good loving family and, you know, I would have wanted to stay there and raise my kids there around, you know, in that area. And so I, even though I had like all the smarts and all the guts to do it, I would have, I would have stayed. So those people are definitely there. So it's a matter of, I think, access, um, to, and, and mentors and so much of the Silicon Valley game is who, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and who can introduce you to who and who can vouch for you. And it's when you're living in you know, Des Moines, it's just hard um, to make those connections. Wow, this is um, captivating, absolutely captivating show on every possible level. Uh, we're so grateful for you uh, joining us today and um, so excited about all your successes and looking forward to your next ones. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just, you know, thank you for having me be on the show. I'm really humbled by that and, um, uh, you know, giving me this opportunity even to just kind of reflect back on where I've been and where I am. And I I just am, you know, humbled and grateful and feel like the luckiest person. Well, that was something. Wasn't she amazing? Yeah. You know, and I think the, uh, the thing we didn't get to, to, to talk about was, you know, her early life was pretty rough. I mean, far more than she, you know, laid out in the show and she told us, you know, I told you earlier and relayed to us that she, had been given up to foster care and had to live in her car for a while. And I mean, she really yeah. is a rag to riches story in the most, you know, American of ways. No, and, and I, I really thought it was interesting how she related that though to her um, almost because, I mean, the way she describes it anyway, is like, because of that, she really has this type of fearlessness where she figures like, what's the worst that can already happen? At some level, she feels like it's already happened. So like, there's only upside for her. So, um, you know, and again, like, I, I mean, I think it really is her personality and her drive and her innate intelligence, but just a remarkable um, person with, with just so much good perspective on so many things. It's, It's an amazing story. It really is. Really, that was a lot of fun to listen to. Wow. Well, please remember to rate us on iTunes, leave a comment, help others discover the show. You can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report. And you can follow the wonderful Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytical capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, 
The firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to help its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Take care and be fearless. That is a great piece of advice. Is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. <laughs>